tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 460 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Due to the fact that we have been searching around and organizing ourselves and been under a, a lot of stress and workloads, both Emily and myself, early this year, good things, good problems to have, uh, this week's episode will be a repeat but a good one. We're going to run episode 346, which is kind of, uh, it doesn't sort of, uh, you know, it doesn't lose its newsworthiness because those of you who have been listening to the podcast for a long time will know that this is the one with Wade Davis. Now, Wade Davis is a legend amongst legends, really a honorary Colombian. I think he was granted citizenship by President Santos. He's now like an official ambassador uh, for Colombia and, of course, nature and so on in this area. He speaks so well of Colombia. But this episode is not based on One River, his seminal book about the Amazon. But no, we're going to look back at Magdalena, Magdalena River of Dreams, the story of Colombia. So his most recent book, which really is, it's kind of a love story. It's a love story, his love story for Colombia. And I think you should all read it. If you if you read this book, you'll understand Columbia so much more. And it's a very chatty, it's a very conversational book, so very enjoyable to read. And uh, I know that a lot of you out there have, uh, well, of course, uh, mentioned to us that this is the top person we've had on the podcast. And of course, some of you, uh, you know who you are, have also mentioned that it has been your favorite episode on the Columbia Calling podcast. So very good to revisit this one. I'm very happy to say, though, that my call for new interviewees last week has brought forward more than 15 or 16 potential interviewees. And that is excellent because it will lead us well past Easter and really into the third quarter of the year and some great uh, nominations and already we've had people uh, you know emails from those people contacted and so on so some excellent things in the future but that does not mean you guys should stop please continue to think about potential interviewees for the columbia calling podcast because we are here we're not going anywhere emily and myself will continue 
to bring you this podcast and the news for as long as you continue to listen. And of course, please, please, please consider supporting us at patreon.com. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling and throw a couple of dollars at us a month, you know, less than the cost of a Starbucks coffee, please. Please consider that. So now over to some words from our sponsors. And also keep an eye out on social media because I will be highlighting it. As of tomorrow, we will be, well, tomorrow I am recording the first podcast uh, for Latin news. I am the host of this podcast and we will be releasing it a few days later. So on social media, I will be promoting that indeed. And it's a region-wide podcast. So just all about the Americas. And it's very exciting indeed to move on to another podcast and have well more work so i think i hope many of you will also tune into that podcast of course if you're not uh, already too overwhelmed with my dulcet tones uh, too many times a week or so on anyway over to our sponsors and then of course the news the columbia news brief from emily hart thank you again for listening and don't go away the columbia calling podcast is sponsored by latin news a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling Podcast is also proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Colombia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation and bespoke packages throughout Colombia since 2017. By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's columbiacalling.co, or the Plan My Trip form on the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions, and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories for the week of March 6th, 2023. Massacres and murders of social leaders increased last year, according to the United Nations Human Rights Situation Report for Colombia, released this week. Murders of social leaders in relation to their work reached 116 verified cases last year, as compared to 100 in 2021 and 94 in 2020. Massacres had also increased substantially with more than 90 verified last year, as compared to 78 the year before. Displacement and confinement due to violence were also substantially up from previous years. The UN called for strengthening state presence, coordination and capacity in affected territories and recommended negotiations with armed groups to find measures which might de-escalate this violence. 
Police and protesters have clashed in San Jose de Caguan in the southern department of Caquetá, leaving two men dead at protests around an oil field being exploited by Emerald Energy Company, a subsidiary of Chinese state-owned company Sinochem. A group representing around 150 campesino farming communities constituting thousands of people has been protesting since January, asking the company to invest in infrastructure works in the local area, particularly roads. The company had reportedly committed to these investments to mitigate damage that their operations caused in the area. This week, as well as roadblocks preventing access to the oil field, protesters burned down installations. 79 policemen and nine oilfield workers were held hostage. Ministers arrived to negotiate, and after three days of talks, hostages were released. The government committed itself to review the violence against campesino movements during the protests and review compliance regarding paving of the road. While he said he did not wish to stigmatise protests, Interior Minister Alfonso Prada controversially suggested that armed groups had in fact infiltrated the campesino guard, including dissident FARC guerrilla. It was a week of growing resistance for President Gustavo Petro, with falling popularity, a cabinet crisis and pushback on a range of issues from institutions as well as allies. A new set of Invermare polls shows that Petro's disapproval rating is now higher than his approval rating, for the first time so far during his mandate. Disapproval is now at 51% and approval at 40%. The president began his tenure with 56% approval. For those polled, unemployment and the economy were the main concerns. Colombia's constitutional court has announced that they can and will provisionally suspend laws if they consider that those laws do not comply with the constitutional design of the country. This unprecedented change in jurisprudence is an innovation that adapts the court's control mechanisms in order to maintain the integrity of the constitution. Ongoing controversy around the health reform has cost Petro three members of his cabinet this week – Minister for Education, Minister for Sport and Minister for Culture have all been removed from their positions. Minister for Education Alejandro Gaviria has also served as Minister for Education under the government of President Juan Manuel Santos and was considered a political heavyweight as well as a centrist counterbalance to the president. Various parties even within the government coalition have come together in a dissident alliance against the health reform bill. Further concerns emerged this week as it was reported the bill would cost around 2 billion pesos per year for the next decade without a clear source of funding for those costs. Petro has said he will continue to seek consensus around the health reform, presenting an alternative bill this week. Meanwhile, the Labour Reform Bill has been released. With 77 articles, the bill seeks to regulate work via platforms like Rappi and Uber, which currently do not classify their workers as employees and who do not receive any workers' rights. Overtime pay will be increased and strikes in essential public services will be permitted as long as a skeleton service can be maintained. The bill also promises a mandatory annual readjustment of all salaries according to inflation. Petro has asked the prosecutor to investigate his own son and brother, seemingly hoping to prove their innocence. Dave Vasquez, ex-wife of Petro's son, Nicolas Petro Burgos, has publicly accused him of embezzling campaign funds during Petro's campaign, during which she says he received money from businessmen close to smuggling and paramilitarism. Also during the presidential campaign, Petro's brother was accused of visiting mafia bosses and offering reduced sentences and judicial benefits.
The investigation hopes to clarify whether or not there were unauthorised negotiations. Colombia's state-owned oil company, Ecopetrol, has reported record net profits for 2022, 6.9 billion US dollars, double the previous year's profits, boosted by high oil prices and greater-than-expected production. The price of energy in Colombia for the user increased by more than 22% between December 2021 and December 2022, a rise almost double the inflation rate. Meanwhile, the president's plan to intervene in energy prices in order to keep tariffs low for users has been blocked by the Council of State, which has ruled a temporary suspension of the decree with which he assumed regulatory powers. The court's ruling found that, via five laws, Congress had delegated those powers to regulatory body Craig, and that constitutionally it would have to be Congress who delegated them elsewhere if that were to change. Petro has said he will not fight the decision. And more chaos with Viva Air, who suspended flights this week in the midst of an investigation into their supposed merger with Avianca, which is so far unresolved. The suspension affected hundreds of thousands of passengers and tourism to the island of San Andres, to which Viva transports more than half of its visitors. Avianca has defended itself against accusations of an irregular merger with Viva Air, calling it disinformation, slander and false news, promoted by those who oppose the airline's continued existence. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is the Columbia Calling Podcast, episode 346. And I'm really pleased and quite honored to announce that our guest this week is Wade Davis, the author of 20 books, including One River, The Wayfinders, and Into the Silence. That one won the 2012 Samuel Johnson Prize, the top British award for literary nonfiction in the English language. He was the explorer in residence for over a decade for the National Geographic Society, and he's currently the professor of anthropology anthropology at the University of British Columbia. 2016, he was made a member of the Order of Canada. In 2018, he became an honorary citizen of Columbia. And this year, his book, Magdalena River of Dreams, came out. And that is, of course, what is of interest to hear us here on the Columbia Calling podcast. So can I just say thank you so much for your, for your limited time and agreeing to be on my little podcast. Oh, Richard, it's a joy to be with you. I, I, I just love what you've managed to do in Mompos, and uh, it's just fun to meet you, mate. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so you're talking to us right now from uh, Vancouver, so a long way from where I am right now in Mompos, and I hope that the ambient noise behind us in Mompos doesn't interrupt too much. But I just want to let's talk about how this book came about. I, it was like a throwaway conversation in Medellin one afternoon. Yeah, well, I was very lucky that um, some really extraordinary journalists from uh, from Medellin, uh, Hector Rincon and Ana Cano, who had worked out an arrangement with the Grupo Argos, where um, they were producing a series of books, illustrated sort of coffee table books, on all the five major regions of Colombia, the, La Costa, Los Llanos, Amazonas. The Cordillera and, and the Choco. And these books were not to be uh, sold as much as gifted to every library in the country to send a message to a new generation of Colombians that, of course, theirs was not a country of violence and conflict, but rather a place of the greatest biodiversity 
uh, ecological and geographical mm-hmm. diversity on the planet. And they had asked me to come down to help promote the Amazon uh, edition of the series. And uh, just one day over lunch, um, I sort of said, you know, well, now that you've covered the land, why don't we do the rivers? And in that inimitable Colombian way, magic happened in an instant. And they said, sure, let's do it. And and um, the, the head of Guru Argos was at the lunch and he said, well, we'll support that. And so that began what ended up being almost a five-year engagement as as to try to use this river um, to tell the story of Colombia, because Colombia is the Magdalena, and the Magdalena is the country, and in fact, Colombia is a gift of the river. And at no point was I tempted, you know, to, you know, paddle the river from source to mouth, or even to travel its length by hitching rides on riverboats, you know, admirable as those uh, achievements might have been. This was not to be a, a book about self. It wasn't to be a travel book in that sense. You know, the, the Spanish subtitle for the, um, the the Colombian edition won't be River of Dreams. It'll be Historias de Colombia. It's really the, the voice of Colombia speaking through the river. And, you know, I always feel that, you know, when in doubt, an author should get out of the way and let the story speak. So in that sense... I spent five years, you know, visiting um, every corner of, 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 of the Cuenca. And it was our mutual friend, Herman Ferro, who runs a glorious museum of the Magdalena in Onda, who, who really turned me on as we walked through the museum to the fundamental and obvious fact that the Magdalena is not just a river course, but it's a massive valley that has touched the entire history of the country. Um, and, and that really dictated the itinerary. Uh, by which I explored the region, both geographically, culturally, but even metaphysically, uh, over the course of five um, different uh, long trips to the to the Cuenca. Yeah, I would I would say at some point, at some level, and uh, it's exhaustive. It's a it's not only a history book, and you know you aren't you aren't the figure in the book. You are the vessel by which the book has been written, but it's also you know a three hundred and fifty plus page homage to Colombia, but also to the Colombian people, because each segment and each uh, insert is, is a story with a, with a personality and a character. And you really, you really pick up some interesting people along the way. One of those who you just mentioned, Herman Ferro Medina, who's been one of our greatest uh, supporters here in Montpós. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I hope you're in touch with him continually about this, this book. And oh, Absolutely. You know, um, he, he wrote me the most, probably the most poignant words in, in the book. Uh, were spoken by Edman when he 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 reflected on the fact that he was at the at the actual confluence of the Calc and the Magdalena as he first heard word of the uh, signing of the peace agreement, and he said the, he he said he sort of immersed himself on this river that he loved so much, and he said rivers of tears fell as he realized that that uh, my son could grow up in a in a land at peace. It's the most beautiful passage perhaps in the entire. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, you know, Hector Abad, our good friend from Medellin, brilliant writer, um, uh, he, he, he described the book as a love letter to the country. And in many ways, it, it, it is that. But it's also kind of sociology by serendipity in the sense that, um, you know, one one incredible Colombian passed me off to another incredible Colombian. And amongst them was my well, my good friend, uh, Sandra Uribe. Uh, que es más paisa que cualquier paisa, you know, and 
she herself embodied every, in a way, um, uh, Richard, every character, because there were so many people I met had to fight their way into the manuscript, if you know what I mean. And, and in that sense, each character in the book had to embody uh, some element of the saga of modern Columbia. So, for example, uh, Sandra exemplified what it meant to be a, a child of a, a, a scion of the of of the elite forced to flee abroad. I mean, I mean, her parents were nearly destroyed by bombs. The door of her house was blown in in Medellin at the age of 15. She realized she couldn't tell the sound of thunder from the sound of bombs. She goes off to Miami where she's made to live with her grandmother, where at 15 she's made fun of because she comes from the city of Escobar by American high school students whose main social activity is the pursuit of drugs with cocaine being their drug of choice. Sandra, of course, having grown up in Medellin, has never seen, let alone used cocaine. And and she then returned to, to Medellin, not simply to live there, but to be part of the rebirth of her city and the rebirth of her nation. And she introduced me to this fantastic journalist, um, um, Juan, Juan Betancourt, and I called him Juancito because he, he you know, he, he I, I just found him such an endearing man. And he, of course, had begun life um, uh, as as a sports reporter, but of course, like everybody else, especially in the in, in the wake of the bombing of of the 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 um, the Espectador uh, headquarters in 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 the, the newspaper in, in Bogota. Um, um, he became he became part a war correspondent for seven long years, and his passion in life since since he heard the stories of his father, the Vapores and the David Arango, had always been to travel the river from source to mouth. Mm-hmm. And after after seven years in in the front lines of the war, he had his chance to do it, <clears throat> and he wrote a beautiful book called I think it was Los Olvidados, the Forgotten Ones, but and it, it's essentially. You know, he he described his work, and and he he he's typically Colombian. He was so generous. In the middle of vacation, when he could have been with his family, he agreed to join Sandra and I on this kind of madcap exploration of the Medio Magdalena. And in retrospect, it seemed almost preordained for the three of us to come together. But in the moment, it was kind of, you know, three people, total strangers to each other who knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But magic happened, as it always does in Colombia. But but Juan described his own research uh, that led to the writing of his book as being sort of sociology of serendipity. He would turn up in a village and simply wait uh, or, or on a bank of the river and simply wait until he found someone who had something to say that the world needed to hear, which, as he knew, as a great storyteller, is the essence of storytelling. And that's, in a, in, in a sense, I didn't really set out to mimic his methodology, if you will. But in a way, that's what the book became, where, you know, we never knew who we were going to meet. And we literally were um, in this kind of wonderfully Colombian way, you know, passed off one one person to the next, each one had had something very unique to share about their experiences. And then collectively, I think it, it, it's a fair representation of, of, of the harsh reality of Colombia uh, over the last 50 years, but also of the great hopes of Colombia. I mean, I, you know, I, when you write, you know, Hemingway said, uh, you know, any, anyone who says who writing is easy is either a, a lousy writer or a liar, you know, books are hard and I've written a lot of them. And, you always have to have some passion. You have to have some sense your tr- motivation. And for me, it, with Columbia, that wasn't difficult. I just had the strongest sense 
that the dark cliches um, that um, that circulate the world about this wonderful nation were so unjust, given the circumstances. I mean, let's let's step back for a moment. I mean, you know, here's a country that has indeed suffered 50 years of conflict, uh, 220, some say 260,000 dead, 7 million displaced, um, you know, 100,000 missing, perhaps God knows how many kidnapped. And yet through all those years, um, the number of combatants in a nation of 50 million people never numbered somewhere, I would guess, between 200 and 300,000. So the vast majority of Colombians, by definition, were simply caught in the vice of war, um, uh, innocent victims of a conflict beyond their control. And critically, that conflict would not have lasted a week um, had it not been for the flood of illicit money coming from the cocaine trade. I mean, I remind any uh, audience that will listen that in the last year before uh, the signing of the peace agreement, the FARC, who were down to perhaps 6,000 cadre, mostly teenagers in search of a meal, nevertheless made $600 million from extortion, with much of that coming from the cocaine trade. Well, you give me $600 million and the, uh, the, the Brooklyn Boy Scouts, and I can wreak havoc in New York State. In other words, you know, I really do sincerely believe that from the very beginning, and I was living in Medellin at the very beginning. I was working, I had a post at the Medellin, El Jardín Botánico in Medellin in 1974 when the cartels were emerging. And from the very start, uh, North Americans were complicitous in the trade. It was Vietnam vets who taught the Colombians how to fly. Uh, you know, my friend Antonio Dorado, this wonderful filmmaker from Cali, um, a professor at Valle as well, did a really good film um, uh, called El Rey, um, The King, about the early days of the drug trade. And it really captures this unholy alliance between kind of uh, low-life Colombian hustlers and 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 uh, Vietnam vets and, and goes in Colombia in the early 70s in search of kind of easy living, beautiful women, cheap drugs, etc., that that what you know and 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 so the it, the cartels may have emerged from the uh, from the boardrooms and barrios of Medellin and Cali, but but the entire trade was always driven by consumption. Mm-hmm. And I I say to Americans in particular, how would you feel if Canada had patterns of drug consumption and laws that facilitated a black market trade, but a nation that did nothing to curb that trade in any serious way, such that 85 million Americans were forced to leave their homes. Well, that's what happened to Colombia. And yet the amazing thing is the strength of the Colombian people allowed them to endure that, not just endure that, but maintain their democracy, their civil society, green their cities, uh, create millions of acres of national parks, seek restitution with indigenous people in a manner that though flawed in places, was nevertheless unlike anything a nation state has managed to do. Um, and I'm thinking, of course, of Virgilio Barco and Martin van Hildebrand's creation of the of the 162 resguardos in the northwest Amazon in the 1980s, encoded in the 1991 constitution in perpetuity in Colombia. No nation state's ever done that. And uh, of, uh, because of that, a whole new dream of culture has been reborn amongst the 57 ethnicities of the Colombian Amazon. So... So I I, I think none of this is to absolve Colombians of agency or responsibility. Um, I mean, you know, you you know, um, I've I've heard Colombia described uh, as la tienda la esquina. I mean, there's this entrepreneurial zeal 
And and at some level, the Pisces weren't about to let that trade slip through their fingers, right? And it is kind of an amazing achievement if you if you ignore the darker uh, elements of of the madness that that even though the most powerful military um, force in the world was spending even in the early days up to thirty seven billion dollars a year to try to stop the trade. Uh, the 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 Medellin cartel was still putting 80 tons of cocaine into America every month, um, generating some say 70 million dollars of profit a day, um, and and in fact accountants in Medellin were budgeting a thousand dollars a week just to purchase elastic bands. So 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 this 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 unholy trade, um, it's amazing that Colombia endured it if you think about it, and it remains this, the the thorn in the side of peace. And this is why there's so many of us are in favor of the uh, legalization of all drugs, uh, but most importantly, the, the the carving off of coca from cocaine, so that people recognize that coca is to cocaine what potatoes are to vodka. And one of the fascinating things, Richard, you may not have heard, but you know, there, there's often been said that you know, oh no, no, coca in terms of cultural context, is a Peruvian, a Southern Andean phenomena. We just took the, the plant and, and extracted cocaine and, and, and exploited it. Not so. Recent science, for the longest time, we thought that the, the original cultivated um, species of coca was Erythroxum coca from the Southern Andes. And based on a number of morph- morphological traits, we thought that the coca of Colombia, uh, coca, uh, Erythroxylum novogranatensi, was derived from Peruvian coca. <clears throat> and that the coca of the Colombian Amazon, we do know, is a variety of the Peruvian strain that came up the river and was planted vegetatively. So the coca of the northwest Amazon has nothing to do, well, is not the same as the coca of the mountains of the Sierra and of Cauca. But the fascinating thing, and that, and that 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 kind of history held for ever since we did those first studies in the 1970s. Interestingly, recent work using DNA analysis has shown without doubt um, that coca originated in two places from the same progenitor, the same wild species that is found along the entire cloud forest of the of the Andes was reached out to by peoples of the Southern Andes, but independently from peoples of Colombia, found the same wild species and domesticated it. So when you say today that coca was born in Colombia, it really was born in Colombia. Wow. And so, it's all new to me, this. It's definitely all new to me and all new to my listeners. Uh, the, the, obviously, the, the, the problem of cocaine is something that you, uh, you know, deal with a great deal in the book and have dealt with in articles and, and, and so on. And, of course, the Magdalena River. You know, we know here, for example, if there's a boat on the river in Montbos after 6 p.m., it's probably transporting something illicit because they're not allowed on the rivers. And yet it still occurs. The money is too much, as you say. There's just too much money. But when we, I mean, when I read your book, and I reread it as well, and, and I think, you know, you, you go and we, you've mentioned all of these things. I mean, you, you get sort of passed around uh, from person to person, from character to character. You go from people of the elite, and you go to, you know, let's say more ordinary people. So you've got a, a cross section of who's there. 
But it kind of, to me, reinforces the the rural-urban divide and the have-have-nots in Colombia. And you just do discuss uh, the the need for land reform, and you do discuss that it happened somewhat in Bolivia and somewhat in Peru back in the, let's say, 60s and 70s. And it's the first thing on on the peace accords. It's the first thing discussed, the agrarian reform. Are we any closer in your mind as a, as a long-term visitor, as, as a person who knows Colombia inside and out? Are we any closer to seeing something of that nature? Well, you know, land reform doesn't mean expropriation, which is how it is often described by those who resist it. Uh, it, it it's really about fairness and justice. And uh, uh, the, the whole situation, land tenure in Colombia is so complicated because during the during the conflict, the, the federal state was not even present in much of the country, and uh, extortion occurred. Um, even in the process of reconciliation, p- individuals who had to flee their land come back and find that their land, even with the best of intentions, has been given to another campesino who was desperate to need it because they had been. Uh, and I've seen that on the ground in many many places. I think in general, and and this is a kind of a parallel to what's going on in the United States that's been revealed in the COVID crisis, is that, you know, the thing that drives unrest, the thing that drives, um, uh, that erodes the well-being of of countries is fundamental notions of justice and fairness. You know, um, I say that not as someone from the left. My politics are very much down the middle. But if you look at the American situation, for example, in the wake of COVID, the, the whole the whole um, so Trump cohort, if you will, are individuals who, for the most part, feel that they've been left out. You know, if you look back in uh, American history, the, the, the you know, coming out of World War Two, four percent of the world's population generated half the world's economy, built 90 percent of the world's automobiles. And Europe was in ashes, as was Japan and Asia. And that abundance, that monopoly, if you will, uh, allowed for a truce between labor and capital. It gave us a weekend, gave us a middle class whereby a man of limited education could look forward to buying a house buying a car, looking forward to putting his kids through public school. And 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 yet, and not that the 1950s were an ideal time in America, certainly if you're a person of color or gay or a woman, but the point is in economic terms, the, the, the culture was more uh, reminiscent of Denmark today than it was of America today. Um, you know, the, the, the income of a, of a CEO would be 20 times that of a work, a, a staff member. Uh, marginal tax rates were 91 percent. Not that people paid 91 percent, but the message was there that everybody contributes. Well, today, the average CEO would have an income perhaps 500 times that of a white collar worker. You know, the, 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 the top 1 percent controls a trillion dollars of assets, the bottom half have more debt than assets. Um, the top richest three Americans control more wealth than the lower poorest 160 million. And 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 so this this chasm between those who have and those who have not uh, is is something that no democracy in the long term uh, can tolerate or endure if it is to remain democratic. And I think that uh, in in Colombia, you know that at the end of the day. Uh, the discrepancies between those who have and those who have not 
have to be addressed. And the country, frankly, is wealthy enough to do that. I mean, I think one of the real tragedies is the timing with which the peace accord began to unravel. If you think about it, if, for example, if President Santos had not been precluded from continuing in office for, say, a second term, things might have been very different. But if you think of what happened, I mean, you know, it's interesting, 2006, when to his enormous credit, Alvaro Uribe uh, uh, demilitarized the paramilitaries. Now, of course, he didn't, you know, he didn't drive them off the scene. Maybe he just put them underground. But as an open marauding force, they were neutered and neutralized. And to do that, he had to offer incredibly lenient terms, which offended so many people on the left. But of course, the Paracos were not about to simply put down their arms and walk into a prison cell. And by the same token, when President Santos was negotiating with the FARC, and again, I go back to that statistic, as long as you're making $600 million, uh, given the topography and geography of Colombia, a handful of people with those kind of resources can, can be a thorn in the side of the state forever, right? So again, President Santos had to offer terms that would guarantee that the FARC would walk out of the forest and into the civil society, which he attempted to do. He was pilloried for that, even though it was really analogous just to what Uribe had done in 2006. And and then the peace agreement itself, people around the world don't realize how complex it is. You know, I mean, it's got hundreds of clauses. The implementation of it was going to be $45 billion. And then suddenly, because of the referendum, I mean, think what might have happened if you know, President Santos didn't have to put the vote to a referendum. And what he did in, in pushing the treaty through Congress was completely illegal. But because he, I think, in, in a really gracious way, had put it to a referendum and the referendum so narrowly failed, right, by hundreds of votes only, then people on the right felt uh, uh, offended when he pushed it through, which was a legal thing to do. Mm-hmm. But 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 then. Uh, because of Colombia's constitution and he wasn't able to run again, you, you saw Ivan Duque be able to split a divided field with the support of Alvaro Uribe and, uh, you know, and, and become president on a platform that, in a sense, promised not only, you know, if not to completely um, drop the agreement, but certainly to dismantle key elements of it, or at least not to enthusiastically uh, um uh, embrace it. Mm. And even though, by the way, homicide rates dropped within the first year of peace to levels not seen since 1975. Then from what I hear from my Colombian um, friends, journalists in particular, all these vast areas had been occupied by the FARC. The federal state did not inhabit them quickly enough. And into that void came all the opportunists, the, mm. the, the disgruntled FARC, the dissident FARC, the, the ELN, the, the, the bandidos, the carteles, whatever. And, and the treaty promised to open up the society. So civil society lifted its head and once again got it chopped off with all these assassinations. And, and so that puts out this terrible image to the world. And at the same time, suddenly oil prices plummet and Colombia is dealing with the greatest humanitarian crisis in the history of Latin America. 1.8 million Venezuelans, who, by the way, aren't being put into cages as the Americans have been putting um, um, innocent mothers and children on their border through an the explicit policy of denial. 
Um, the Colombians have housed, fed, given medical care and education to 1.8 million people. This is a, a humanitarian gesture that ought to be heralded around the world, and yet you never hear a word about it. So in this sense, um, I don't think there's anyone particularly to blame, but clearly the peace process is precarious. And what keeps it precarious, above all, is cocaine. Yeah. You know, as long as you have that kind of money— you know, when we were in a small town of San Diego, the Diana Ocampo is a really powerful female in the book, uh, and the story of her family is just heartbreaking. Uh, but she took us to a little rock on on their on their farm. Their farm had been totally destroyed uh, because it was occupied by both the paramilitaries and the FARC in the long battles around that small little um, town of San Diego on the Caucahuila border. And and she took us to a stone where every night the family would gather to ask themselves, should we be planting coca? They were the only family that didn't. And the they knew that if they did, their financial problems would be over. But the, the stepfather, Don Jose, just said, which one of you wants to be the first to die? And as it turns out, they were the only family not to suffer death. Uh, but at the same time, when I asked them, uh, they, they said that to grow cane and make panela, the returns for that were one one thousandth less than what you could get for coca leaves. So, you know, cosechando coca, la, la, la cosecha de coca, vale a lo menos, uh, at least a thousand times more probably than any other crop. So in those circumstances, um, you know, people have no options really. And that's one of the reasons so many people are advocating the creation of a legal nutraceutical market uh, for um, for the coca leaf so that we can actually have a product which will surpass coffee in terms of its value because it is a much better stimulant. And don't forget that we've done the nutritional studies of coca, and it turns out to be full of vitamins, more calcium than any other plant ever studied, enzymes that enhance the body's ability to digest carbohydrate high elevation, 4,000 years of ritual and, and daily use with not one sign of toxicity or addiction in all the pre-Columbian peoples of the, of the Andes and the Amazon and including the peoples today. So to compare coca with cocaine is like comparing the luscious fruit of a peach with the dangerous cyanogenic um, uh, um, prussic acid found within the pit of a peach. And so, you know, th there's only one sl ultimate solution, and, 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 th and, and this should be the gift of the world to Colombia, which is the legalization and let people deal with the consequences of it. And above all, let those in the consuming nations for once take some responsibility for a dynamic that has brought agony to one of America's great shining democracies, which is Colombia. And, and you know, once you can get stability uh, in the economy and in, in the countryside, then people in a new Colombia will have the confidence to, to address issues of economic inequity such that no young person will ever be tempted to take up arms simply to get three meals a day or to pursue a kind of a antiquated, um, uh, a, a completely um, uh, 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 debunked and and uh, exposed ideology of Marxist materialism that no nation has ever benefited from.
Mm-hmm. I, yeah, well, I'm completely yeah, on board I'm, with you there, and and of course, I I think we both stand on the same side of the page when it, to, it comes to fumigation, aerial fumigation, which is likely to return under Duque. I think. You know why? why I, I asked a simple question. You know, in the book, why on earth should Colombian people who did not begin this problem, who are not the engine driving the trade, why should they for one moment? accept any potential danger to their richest national resource, which, of course, is the biodiversity, the plants and the animals of of the landscape, uh, the fish of the rivers. Why should they accept any uh, risk to that, um, let alone to the health of their own children, to satisfy the political needs of of a nation whose own people are so uh, uh, delusional they, and, and so miserable that they seek escape in, in a drug that's best used as a topical anesthetic to numb the senses so you can pull a tooth. You know, it, it, let America and let anyone who uses this, this foul drug um, come to terms with it. Now, look, th- there's another obvious thing. I mean, I say that because I'm, I'm one who's always trying to break off coca from cocaine. Mm. But the bottom line is that there's no such thing as good and bad drugs. They're good and bad ways of using drugs. The truth is that cocaine hydrochloride remains our most effective topical anesthetic uh, for nose, throat, near surgery. It also is true that, though, that, that, that one is completely capable of having a reasonably decent relationship with recreational cocaine, one assumes. I know that's for people to make that decision themselves. But all we know, and I'm not one of those people who has any interest in recreational cocaine, but the point is what we do know without doubt is that the consequences shown of the illicit trade are infinitely more dangerous, ir- corrosive, and and uh, uh, debilitating than any imagined consequences of a policy of complete legalization. Mm-hmm. The truth mm-hmm. is, if you legalize drugs tomorrow, cocaine in particular, consumption would not go up because people are never motivated to use or not use illicit drugs by their by their legal status. You'll never meet anyone who does it who cares less, right? And if I want to get cocaine, sadly, I can get cocaine in the street corner of any capital city of anywhere in the world. That's how effective the distribution networks are. My reason not to do it has nothing to do with the illicit nature of cocaine. Mm. It's because I know that the use of cocaine is is not a good thing to do over time, at least for me. Mm-hmm. So so again, I, I think that the the dangers of legalization are always over overwrought over exaggerated in fact every country that's legalized drugs has seen consumption drop because a lot of what drives the whole energy of the trade is a profit motive i'll tell you one quick story robert uh, richard sorry when we when we um i came back from columbia in 1975 having done this long study of coca for the u.s department of agriculture uh my close friend tim plowman who led the uh, the research told me there was a job available at the USDA that he wanted me to apply for. But then he said, if I took the job, he'd kill me. Well, I thought, well, that's interesting. So I go out to the USDA and I go to this office and I find this guy who clearly is not USDA. He's DEA, right? First thing I notice about him, he's a drug addict. I can't get into the room for the cigarette smoke. Then I see that his walls are covered by seized paraphernalia. It's like going to the office of an anti-pornographer and having the wallpaper pornography. And then I'm looking at this guy. Remember, this is 1975. So the cartel thing is just beginning. 
He's got he's got gold chains around his neck. He's got gold nuggets on his wristwatch band. Uh, he's got a big butterfly collar that reveals a hairy chest. You can't make this stuff up. And it turns out that what he wanted me to do, all they had concluded from our research, which had traced the entire history of the sacred plant, the divine leaf of immortality, that had shown for the first time how nutritious it was and how critical it was to the nutritional regime and to the ritual um, uh, life of the peoples of South America. All he had distilled was that Tim and I were good at finding coca fields. And he wanted me to go back into the coca plantations, secure the pests, the biological pests, bring them back that they could be um, mutated or, or, or bred to be more pernicious. And then I was to take them back and reintroduce them to kill more coca plants. And, and, I, and I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, I can't believe you. And then I look at him, I think, Jesus, where have I met you before? And I suddenly realized that I hadn't literally met him before, but I had met him a thousand times because he was a Medellin cartel. His energy, his motivations, his interest in the drug were exactly their interests. You know, he was a beneficiary of if, if Escobar was making, you know, $70 million a day, as they said, and no one knows if you really made that much money. This guy was no, 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 no chump. I mean, he was part of the, he was a beneficiary of the $60 billion the Americans were spending on the war on drugs. Neither party had the slightest interest in the war on drugs ending. This was a gravy train, and every single agency of the U.S. government, as the Washington Post would later reveal, got a piece of that bureaucratic pie. The point is the two, the two people fighting this, the DEA and the war on drugs fanatics and the cartels, they love each other. I mean, they are absolutely simpatico because the last thing, the last thing the cartels want is legalization, and the last thing the the agents want is legalization. Everybody would be out of work, right? So that's 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 a big con of the war on drugs. Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I think it's ridiculous. I've covered this uh, on a couple of uh, podcasts prior to that, this one, of course, and 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 yeah, I we've long known this. It's the uh, it's the truth. We those of us who are let's say Colombianists or been here a long time, we've long known this and seen this. And of course, that experience and that anecdote is, is fantastic because it is it really shows it from a personal perspective. Uh, you know, where, where have I met this guy? But actually, I've met him in every other way. Um, yeah. I wonder, let's, let's just, uh, as we wind this down, unfortunately, but I think I could get you to talk for hours and hours and hours, just to go back to the book a little bit, because there's something very personal in it for me. And it's not just the Monpos section. And you knowing a, a few more of my personal friends, you talk about Samuel Marmol Abundio, the the uh, cumbia singer. He, he actually played at my wedding, and his son is teaching me how to play drums at the moment. Um, and you talk with the Cabrales family, who are pretty much neighbors from mine too. So this is again, this brings it close. But actually, the thing that really brings it home is that you make a comparison with. Uh, the River Magdalena with the River Thames. And you make a comparison of what would happen when it's cleaned up. And for me, this is very personal. I've just submitted and had it accepted my, my doctoral thesis here. And I make comparisons between London's King's Cross Railway Station and Bogota's Sabana station and the area and a regeneration, but not gentrification. And so I see the same balance that was made and so for me that's very personal and you talk about rebirth redemption 
the symbol of patrimony and pride, and your friend Sandra also mentions it on later on. This really could be a rebirth, a regeneration, the, 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 the river. I mean, there's so many things you brought up there, Richard. I mean, first of all, before we refer to the Thames, let's think of the Mississippi. You know, you know. I mean, just as the Mississippi was a quarter of commerce, the Magdalene is a quarter of commerce, but also a fountain of culture. You know, the the the, the repository of and the source of Colombian music and poetry and prayer and literature. You know, every single musician, including Ubundio, that we met um, in both Monpos and El Banco, the center of Tambora, but also you know. Um, major major centers of cumbia um, always found a way, and up to including the great international star Carlos Vivas, who, who you know, Carlos said to me, you know, um, you know, all our rhythms derive from cumbia, but cumbia comes from the river, and the music is in the river, and and this was a sentiment that was echoed by all these extraordinary musicians that we met, you know, in in the Medio Magdalena and in the Bajo Magdalena. Um, but you know, the, the comparison to the river Thames is that if there's one thing we've seen in COVID is that that was not in that Rolling Stone piece, but, uh, is it sent a message that we're all biological beings on a, on a living planet. And we saw the extraordinary regenerative powers of the earth, you know, within weeks of the global shutdown, you know, you saw a wild boar in the streets of Barcelona, uh, flamingos in the, in the wetlands of Mumbai, cities like Karachi and Kathmandu and Delhi suddenly seeing the white peaks of the Himalaya uh, scoring the, the, the northern horizon for the first time in generations. The canals of Venice in Medellin, the Rio Medellin suddenly looking like a trout stream. You know, you know the earth is so re- remarkably resilient, even if you think the Rio Bogota, which leaves, of course, the capital essentially a dead river. Uh, but even by the time it simply tumbles less than 50 kilometers to Hirado, it is biologically beginning to recover. You know, in 1967, the Natural History Museum in London declared the Thames a totally dead river. I mean, there was no oxygen in it. There was not the possibility of organic life. Uh, well, today there's 125 species of fish in the River Thames. The Hudson River outside of New York was so polluted that people used to quip that you could tell what kind of car was being made in the Terrytown GM factory on the banks of the river by the color of the river because you knew what the paint color was. Well, today there remains a, a problem of heavy metals thanks to the grace of General Electric. But at the same time, people can picnic along the river. You can swim in the river. It will be another century before you can safely eat the fish of the river. Um, but but that said, the fish have returned, and it's one of the richest um, uh, fisheries on on the eastern shores of North America at the moment. I mean, humpback whales have been seen from the midtown Manhattan at the mouth of the Hudson. In, inconceivable a short couple of generations ago. So rivers have this amazing ability. And compared to the status of the, of the River Thames or the, the Hudson River uh, at their low point, the Magdalena remains a, a bountiful river. And if you could simply um, uh, clean up the, 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 the Rio Bogota, which anyone who's been down to the confluence in Hirado, I mean, you literally see this black slurry of sludge coming into the Magdalena, you know, it, it would not take a lot to do that. And I think the way to do it is not as a kind of environmental campaign 
invoking more federal regulations that, as we know, no one follows anywhere, let alone in Colombia. But we should turn the whole thing into a into a gesture of patrimony. And this brings us back to Montpost. You know, one of the things that Enrique, your neighbor, who's a, a passionate lover of Simon Bolivar, and and he was one of the greatest informants we or, or, or friends that we met on on the long series of journeys. He he became my tutor as to the wonder of who these men were. And this very unusual birth of the of the Colombian nation of Gran Colombia, the only nation that was born in a dream of natural history. That that you know it was the journeys of Humboldt that brought this nation alive. And Bolivar literally had the journals of Humboldt in his saddlebags as he marched his armies in that extraordinary war of liberation. He, you know, Humboldt used notions, um, you know, of the, the universe of nature, the power of nature. And in many ways for Humboldt, he was speaking in metaphor. But in this unbelievably interesting way, the liberator, Simon Bolivar, actually took him literally seriously. And and he envisioned a nation built on that. I mean, there are unbelievably strict laws against deforestation. He, he arranged for millions of trees to be planted in Bolivia. He recognized the challenge of the Medio Magdalena long before most people. In other words, Colombia, you can absolutely argue, as I do in the book, was in good measure, if it was born of resistance and blood, and, and revolution, it was conceived from the start in a vision of its natural bounty. So in that sense, as Sandra points out in the conversation we had with Enrique, we need to turn around the protection of nature, not to be the imposition of laws and regulations from a distant capital. And Lord knows in Colombia, it's always been easy to ignore any uh, rules that come down from the capital. We have to turn this into an issue of patriotism such that people understand that if you really understand the genesis of the nation and you love the essence of Colombia, as most Colombians do, a deeply patriotic people, then those who violate nature are committing a form of treason. And those who protect nature are the ultimate patriots. And in that sense, if we turn the the cleaning up of the Rio Magdalena, not from an environmental battle, but as a symbol of national pride and, pat- and, and, and patriotism, of patrimony. Uh, uh, because the Magdalena is Colombia, and Colombia is a gift of the river. And so when the Mamos speak as they do, in full sentences and full paragraphs, that the blood in our bodies is no different than the water in the river itself, they're not speaking in metaphor. It's quite true. We are all part of the hydrological cycle. When we die, our blood, which is a majority of our body's weight, will slip into the soil and flow to the sea as effortlessly as the Magdalena runs to Boca de Sinisa. You know, and so, so, so when the Mamos speak about making ritual payments at the mouth of the river, 
And they tell that in the early days, their ancestors actually made pilgrimages up the entire length of the river to the Macizo Colombiano to make offerings in La Laguna de la Magdalena, the origin point of origin of the river, and that they would stop along the way and measuring the, the, the nature of the relationship of a people to the river as a sign of their civilization. That's a wonderful image to, 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 to think of uh, uh, for a new Columbia. You know, I mean, I, I think in the end, what I'm trying to do with this book is the thing that people don't appreciate around the world, even within Columbia, is that think of the consequences of two generations of young kids being taught that their country is a, is, is a failed state, a pariah nation. You know, a good friend of mine, Carolina Barco, who was the external affairs minister uh, um, and and son of a I mean, daughter, rather, of a president, of course, Virgilio Barco, who did so many incredible things. Uh, she was ambassador to Washington, D.C. at the time. She goes to Dulles Airport, and just for the sin of possessing a Colombian passport, she was strip-searched. And when she presented her diplomatic privileges, uh, they dismissed them with obscenities as a bark from the mouth of dogs. Now, if that happens to the ambassador to uh, the United States, how do young Canadians, uh, Colombian students feel? How are they treated? So the psychological impact... Uh, is significant. And the greatest enemy of the peace process is cynicism, negativity, uh, 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 and um, despair. And and so the book is, yes, it, it, it reveals with great empathy what Columbia went through, but it makes a much larger point that that's not Columbia, that my Columbia is, like I always say, you know, a place of um, colores y cariño, where the people have endured 50 years of war precisely because of their character, which is informed by a deep love of the nation and by a powerful spirit of place uh, rooted in that landscape that only Colombians understand. And so the more we can hold a mirror to all that is beautiful and wonderful in Colombia without being naive um, or, 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 or insulting in our naivete uh, uh, or dismissive of the agonies, in our, in our vision of hope uh, that people have endured, the more we can hold up to the country a vision of what it is and what, therefore what it can be and what it has been from its inception during the revolutionary era, the more chance we will have that people will find the confidence to embrace peace. And that's what it takes. You know, war is easy. Peace is hard. Um, but w- with it come limitless possibilities. Well, I can think of no better way than to end on that comment and colores y cariño. Uh, so I'd like to take this moment to say everybody out there, by River of Dream, Magdalena, River of Dreams, Wade Davis's most recent book. And it has been an absolute honor and a pleasure to have you and to hear your thoughts and anecdotes here on the Columbia Calling podcast. Uh, hopefully our paths cross at some point, uh, somewhere, probably here in Colombia, potentially in Montbos, hopefully. Uh, let me just say thank you so much to Wade Davis for his time and his generosity with his anecdotes and stories. Thank you very much, Richard. No vemos en Montbos. The Colombia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. 
sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling Podcast is also proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Colombia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation, and bespoke packages throughout Colombia since 2017. By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's columbiacalling.co, or the Plan My Trip form on the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions, and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 